Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. Our guest this week is Mark Abraham, who I believe has a very interesting career. Originally from Australia, Mark settled in Sweden, starting at KTH, the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. He then moved on to a role for a startup in the private sector, before returning back to academia as an RSE at the National Competence Centre Sweden. Here now my conversation with Mark. Hi Mark and welcome to the show. Mark, could you give us a brief overview of your background? Uh, so I am originally from Australia. I'm now living in Sweden and I'm, I'm working as a research software engineer. What actually made you go to Sweden? I had been uh, doing my previous education and, and early professional career in Australia. been functioning as a, as a research software engineer even while I was doing my PhD there. I'd had a, a long history of programming. I was, I was probably the first kid in Brisbane with a Commodore 64 back in 1983. Right. Uh, so I'd, I'd had a long interest in programming, but never really any formal training. And I'd been able to combine that in chemistry with my interest in chemistry as a undergraduate and postgraduate researcher, doing a variety of different things there. Um, and I ended up doing a lot of modifications to a particular piece of software called Gromax while doing my PhD at the Australian National University. And so at the time I finished there, I was looking around for new places to, to take my life and my career. And Sweden was looking for a development manager for Gromax, so I decided to move to Sweden. Right, you mentioned that you were a research software engineer in Australia. Was that actually a recognized role at that stage, or did you just identify yourself as a research software engineer? Uh, it certainly was a recognized role, and I didn't recognize it myself. My, my doctoral advisor recognized that a lot of what I was doing was not classical academic work, and she encouraged me to make sure I kept a record of the things I, could, I had done so that I could point out what I had done As a, as a way of helping myself identify what my, my strengths were. And then that made it clear to me that trying to pursue a primary academic career from my starting point wouldn't really work. For academics, it's not quite unusual to travel to different countries and settle in different countries, but still moving from Australia to Sweden is quite a big step. I mean, how was that for you? I didn't expect it to be too traumatic. I, I already knew that not knowing Swedish wasn't going to be a, a huge barrier. I'd, I'd been interacting with the, the other Gromax team for, for some years. And of course, all of the conversations online are, are frequently held in English. And so I, I knew my colleagues were going to be able to communicate well with me. And growing up in Australia, it was very frequently the case that the, the Scandinavian countries are, are held up as models particularly in the sort of healthcare and social justice sectors. So I already felt familiar with, with life in Scandinavia all, so I thought the reality is a little different from, from what gets held up from afar, but uh, I've been happy here since. You worked on Gromax, and that sounds quite an interesting project. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So I was working at KTH, uh, which is a, an acronym, unfortunately, from Swedish, so I won't go into that. It stands for, for Royal Technical Institute, so it's, it's the premier technical university in in Sweden and, of course, in Stockholm. I came to a research group primarily based in theoretical physics here, although by the time I, I left, it was had moved to applied physics. So that was that was an interesting journey to observe. Not many research groups could start in theoretical and end up in applied physics departments. 
that was somewhat in the nature of the, the primary activity of the group, which was doing molecular simulations in what has, has come to be called biophysics. There are large numbers of interesting problems in biochemistry and biophysics that can be modeled as large assemblies of atoms with fairly simple interactions between them, but are able to evolve over time. And so Gromax is a molecular dynamics simulation engine that is able to model these charged point masses interacting with simple Coulomb law interactions and Hooke's law interactions in a way that's easy to compute, but you have to do a lot of it, and ultimately allows us to have a very good model of how these biological assemblies actually work. So I came to KTH as the, the first Gromax development manager. A development manager, was that actually involving coding or was it sort of more on the project management side? Um, it was primarily coding, um, and I was in that position for about seven years. And over that time, we'd been very successful based on the, the history of the software and of course, some of the work that I and my colleagues did. By the time I finished, I was maybe 80% managing projects and, and to some extent people. That was a little bit awkward because on paper, they always belonged to some professor somewhere else. So that, that made for, for interesting challenges because I had you know, some some responsibility for their output, but no direct reports. So that was, was an, un, an unhappy compromise of, of needs and, and responsibilities. Can you tell us a little bit more about Gromax itself and the technology stack? So simulation sounds quite interesting. And I know from my own background that I worked on, could you give us a bit more background on Gromax? So it's a, an open source, open community code. In principle, anybody can can join in and participate. We have frequent developer telcos that are, that are available to everyone to join. Development infrastructure is hosted openly on GitLab. You can go and get the code, run it, change it, do what you want. If your code is useful enough, then opening a dialogue with the core team will allow you to work out whether and how that might be able to be contributed back. Unfortunately, we have far too many people wanting to contribute code <laughs> to actually accept all of it because there comes with it a burden of, of maintenance and quality control that it doesn't always make sense to pay. There's a, a core computational engine that's extremely well engineered. It's modern C++ 17. There's a, a fully featured pre-processing and analysis suite that goes along with the core simulation engine. And that simulation engine is optimized for every supercomputing hardware type on the planet, which is a, a tremendous software engineering effort. We always think of open source software that everybody can contribute and it's totally free and the software evolves organically. But very often you see open source software projects that actually needs some quality control. I mean, something like this, you run on different platforms, you try to cater for different HPC platforms, as you mentioned. So how is this organization working? And how do you make sure that actually the people who contribute and whose additions are not going to make it into the code line are not going to be totally left angry and frustrated and leave? That is indeed a big challenge. Um, as always, it's a matter of attracting people to a community and keeping them involved within it and understanding what the, the shared values and, and hopes are and that if somebody's interests are too divergent, then it makes sense for them to follow their own path for a little while. Often it's a little bit of a crusade on their part. I think I've got a wonderful simulation method that's going to allow me to sample these kinds of biological problems more effectively than traditional approach. Sometimes it's obvious that the, this is a path to the future and that that's an easy integration story. But sometimes we need to say, okay, 
the code is open. You can get some help from us in working out where are the seams you would like to modify so that as, as the core code evolves underneath you, your code will continue to, to work. So one of our long-term aims there is to have formally stable APIs there that can run from both C++ and Python. Ah, right. Okay. So you have Python as well, not just C++. Yeah, it's it's growing. Uh, there's there's definitely the, the ability to run these simulations from Python, but the history of Gromax as a one-shot command line tool still shows up a bit. There are some limitations that we're continuing to, to work on. But it's been fascinating to see how Gromax has been able to power projects like Folding at Home, which rose to prominence in the the, the recent COVID era. And it was really interesting to see the way the community supported the research that was going on and still goes on using free screensaver resources. Going back a little bit to submissions. So what's the process? So I've got this wonderful edition of code that I want to make available to everybody else in Gromax. So I'm going to create a pull request, uh, probably. And then who's going to look into it? And how? what are the decision criteria? And how do you ensure that the code submission actually gets into the final code line? Um, so we like the process. We encourage people to follow a process that starts a bit sooner. Get, get, in, get in touch with us orally. Uh, come, come to one of our, our regular Wednesday night meetings where anybody's free to come and talk about, yeah, I'm integrating some code. I've got my own version of the code. I'm having a problem. How, how should I think about things like that? So the, the core team is very willing to, to share its expertise in that way. Um, and that's a much more productive path than hacking on your own for six months and writing some code, because it's very likely that when the core team is able to spend some time looking at the code, we will say, ah, oh, yeah, I'm sure that works in your case because you're only running on this type of computer or in that kind of simulation. But there are these other 10 cases you need to think about. Now, maybe you don't care about them at all. You just want to say, no, I'm, I'm going to disable all of those possible combinations. Um, in which case it might not make sense to integrate your code at all. And that kind of conversation is much more cheaply done up front. The disappointment, it, it's worth remembering, is only that you it's not yet the right time to contribute the code. It may become the right time to contribute later on. The contributor actually has often played a role in that. Sometimes where they've wanted to change the code hasn't been somewhere where the core team has wanted to change it previously. And so there needs to emerge a new scene. Creating that seam within the core code is a contribution that is initially more welcome to the core team. And so that can be a good way to start establishing your bona fides that you care not only about getting your feature in, but also about how maintainable that feature will be in the future. Because then if the core team in a couple of years time, when maybe you've moved on and no longer able to support your feature, if there's no one available to work on that feature, well, we might need to take it out again. And then it's easy because there's a seam and we can just close up the seam again. I think this is quite a nice way of doing it, that you actually start the conversation before you actually make the submission and get in touch with the people who look after it. So the core team, you mentioned there is a core team of people who maintain the integrity of Gromax, etc. So how does this then work, this decision-making process? Is that a collective decision or is somebody then saying, okay, well, I look into it and I, I take charge? Uh, it's, a, it's an open collective decision-making model. People's voices get listened to based on their long experience and being right. I mean, the data definitely influences our decisions. If someone's got a, a method that's hugely more efficient and they can show it with data, that's definitely going to be valuable input to the, the process. The core team derives its funding from a couple of sources. Um, in particular, BioXL 
is a, an EU HPC center of excellence. Uh, it's been funded for the last five or so years now, and that provides a lot of the core funding for features that are focused on usability and the funding support for people who do the code review and the integration and the people work. Uh, so that, that formerly supported me and it now supports the, the current development manager, Dr. Paul Bauer. To date, other projects have mostly provided the funding for make it run fast on this or that kind of hardware. And I'm glad you mentioned funding because we often forget that actually the reason it's a core team is because they probably need to spend a lot of time on it and that means they need to get some funding for that work. Stepping back a little bit, there is a episode or a period in your life where you worked for a startup. Could you give us a brief overview of that? I had found the challenge in my role at KTH as the development manager a little bit blocked because there was no way to progress my career or, or salary within a university unless I would become a tenure-track professor. And I, because I was doing primarily software work, I simply wasn't publishing much research. I was getting a good citation count because many thousands of people cite the Gromex papers every year, and my name was on several of them. Um, so my itch index, index probably looked okay, but it was going to be an uphill battle trying to get any recognition of what I did as primary research, which is often what you need to do to get a, a tenure-track position, whether at your current institution or another one. So I decided that was that was a barrier being pushed far too far, too far uphill and, and looked around for opportunities. Uh, and that came from with, within my network. Uh, one of the former grad students in the lab I'd been associated with had started two startups uh, in Stockholm. And uh, his second one was looking for, he didn't phrase it as a, an RSE type, but that's what he wanted. The name of that company was, was Voxo. They do voice analytics, primarily developing business-to-business -business platforms where, for example, a company with a call center where their customers call in and maybe conduct their primary business or maybe want to complain or praise the company. Uh, those sort of things are very valuable for these companies, but it's often very difficult to get insight into what goes on in these conversations. Are we getting lots of complaints about COVID? Is this particular operator doing a good job or a bad job? Should we be promoting them or helping them with new training? These kinds of things are very hard to get uh, without some sort of automation. And so what we were building as a platform was something that could listen in on these calls and do automated analysis. I mean, it's quite a big step, actually, to go from academia into the private sector and in a startup, because the demands I imagine would be quite different. How was that for you? Um, I enjoyed the, the transition to having a very short-term focus. We, I, I moved from software that was being released every year to software that was being released every two weeks. And so that was <laughs> a, a much more agile place to work. Yeah, there were several other developers on the team who were primarily building the web platform. I had responsibility for the analytics done. Once we converted the audio speech to text, I then looked at the text and produced analytical workflows that understood what was happening at various points in the conversations. That was radically different, but my association with the founder of that, that company was of such long standing that he knew I was well, well able to apply my software analytical skills in a new domain rapidly. And that, that is really my primary skill from the long association I had with different kinds of RSC work. I was a bit lucky that I had the personal association who you know is, is very important in finding career options. Into the private sector, out of the private sector. And I'm quite interested because I had a similar career. So I worked in academia, then I moved into the private sector and went back to academia 
What made you choose to go back into academia? One challenge that Voxer ran into at the early COVID era was that as a business-to-business company, you have relatively limited number of customers. And at that time, in sort of March, April of 2020, many companies stopped making new deals. Uh, and that made for a delicate runway for, for the company. So the company was was quite creative and, and farmed out the developer team to do some mobile app development for another company. And several of us in the company were on what is called in Sweden, re- reduced working hours was, was one of the Swedish government's responses to COVID-19. If employees would accept a certain maximum salary and accept a little bit of a pay cut to do that, and reduced working hours to about 40%, then the state would pay for a significant chunk of their salary. As a way for companies who were suddenly experiencing reduced cash flow to retain their personnel. But what that meant was that in practice, I moved from being a natural natural language processing RSE to being project manager of a mobile app development. Right. Which was an interesting challenge, but not really what I wanted to spend my life doing. I saw the, the role the NCCS advertised, and it, it had two years of dedicated funding at this point, which was looking quite attractive during the middle of a pandemic, and decided that I would apply for that and, and was successful. Is there anything from your time in the private sector that you learned and find useful in your current role? And what would that be, if yes? Two things that I had to continue to work on were the communication skills between the different stakeholders, much more direct contact with clients than I'd had in academia. So yeah, being able to communicate well and ask questions that empathize well with their problems and got the information was a skill that I was, I honed through the, the time that I spent at, at Voxo. And also my ability to estimate how long things take and when they will take too long, how to find things that don't have to be done. There's a temptation in academia to always explore the interesting corners. But if no one's likely to pay money for that capability, in the private sector, that tends to be not so interesting. It has to pay off for the business and its shareholders in, in some ways. And so being able to break down a task into the things that were necessary and the things that were optional was, was a skill I, I was able to work on during my time in the private sector. And that's a skill I can still use in making sure that my time is spent effectively, even though I'm back in the, the academic sector. Yeah, you're quite right, actually. In academia, that doesn't happen quite that often. So you also mentioned working in two weekly cycles. So rather than having a week, a, a yearly output, you have two weekly cycles. Is that something that you think can be transferred into a research context, sort of this kind of more frequent releases? It certainly can. There are many kinds of research software output that, that should be released frequently to get the feedback cycle from its user base. We've even talked about doing that with, with Gromax, going to, to faster than a yearly cycle. Part of the challenge there is that it's quite demanding to do the quality control that we would like to do with it that involves building the code on a bunch of supercomputers after it has been stabilized. We would love to be able to automate that, but currently there's just not quite the resources to put into the people to automate that. Most scientific software gets released every couple of years if you're lucky when someone has some spare time. That's certainly the case with with Gromax's competitors. They, they get released every now and then. However, Doing a release doesn't have to be a heavyweight process. I would like to move on to a slightly different subject. There is a Nordic RSEs association, but it seems that RSEs are not yet recognized roles in Nordic countries, or at least not in every single university or in every Nordic country. And I was wondering how that actually affects your work. Does it affect it at all? Uh, it's, it's definitely a work in progress. My uh, new unit 
at uh, Uppsala University, the, the EuroCC National Competence Centre in Sweden, has six people employed in it, and four of us now identify ourselves as, as research software engineers, and the two others that work within it at Uppsala are in closely related roles doing training and dissemination. That we chose to recognise ourselves as that is, is already a sign of progress. Unfortunately, it's still not yet a thing in university human resources lexicons. We are employed as researchers at Uppsala University, which is just the, the catch-all that is employed in all of the, the Swedish universities. I was, in, I was in the same administrative bucket at, at KTH. One of the side effects of leaving and coming back was that I got to have a new salary negotiation, which is <laughs> generally impossible within a role in any organization anywhere. So un- unfortunately, it is the the most recognized way to <laughs> uh, I- improve one's salary standing. Yeah, tell me about it. Because I'd been extremely effective in my previous role, I was able to come with good references to the new role, and I was happy about that. However, this was an extremely destabilizing period for the people I formerly worked with. They grew through it, so it wasn't all bad, uh, but we really ought to be able to set up career structures for RSEs within the Swedish academic sector that give more options to people to remain with an organization and be recognized for improved output and increased responsibility that they may have taken on. That's indeed a challenge, isn't it? As you mentioned, and that's my experience too, that in order to improve your career chances, you often have to change organization. And that is true for the private sector as it is for the public sector. Absolutely. But, I mean, going from the public sector into the private sector usually means a significant bump in salary. Going back from the private sector into the public sector often isn't that much incentivized. A, the roles aren't that well widely known. And also the salary negotiations are a little bit tricky because public sector jobs usually tend to be a bit more restricted. What do you would like to see to happen to actually move this forward, to make RSE roles in the public sector more palatable in future? Mm, That's an interesting question. That one gets to work with colleagues that share goals. That's, I think, the primary reason why people want to be in that sector. There's plenty of challenges to being in the academic sector associated with getting and keeping funding. But I think if we were able to offer collegiality and better paths to security for funding, then I I think we should be able to provide both an attractive platform for people to work at and also an extremely productive platform for the institution that has the vision to set up and host them. The first university in Sweden who starts adopting this kind of organizational unit is going to have a very easy time attracting the best staff within Sweden. Which university are we talking about? Well, it could, could be any of them. I think the most likely to, to, to take up the torch would be KTH because of the relatively large preponderance of people in that kind of role. I remember a few years ago at a, a, an HPC conference, Professor Mark Parsons of the Edinburgh Parallel Computing Centre remarked that uh, he often gets a lot of grief from his colleagues at other compute centers around Europe because they have a hard time hiring, in particular, women um, to work at their centers. And there are there are challenges associated with both organizations and the pool of people who might want to work at those organizations. But one of the realities was that Edinburgh had hired most of the women already because they had built an attractive place for them to work. And so word of mouth had spread and the women who wanted to work in HBC in Europe predominantly had started to gather in Edinburgh. Mark's like, well, I'm sure it can be done. You guys need to go and do the same sort of things. Don't give me grief about having done it well. I've got the good people. That's your problem. 
And I've taken that lesson to heart. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, because you actually need to create some kind of, I don't know what the phrase is, center of excellence or for lack of better word. And it probably starts sort of crystallizing around that. So I talked, for instance, to a bunch of people in Belgium and for them it was bioinformatics that sort of started the whole RSE movement in their country and they now have an association. HPC very often seems to be a point of crystallization for RSE roles to be recognized. So how far away do you think that the Nordic countries or Sweden, where you live, are from actually getting on that bandwagon? Uh, I imagine it will take a couple of years of effort from a group of individuals. We would need mm. we would need that to be that voice to be being heard in multiple places and multiple institutions. At some point somebody needs to drive the bureaucratic change at a particular institution or to drive some sort of policy change from above. I, I don't know which of those is easier. Unfortunately, from my position down in the, the weeds of writing software, it's a long way from the, the Research Council's policy board discussions. It's valuable that this this process has been bootstrapped in the UK so that we have a model to work from. Yeah, but it's a difficult one because, I mean, as you quite rightly said, it's, um, you know, there's the community building aspect, but there's also the formal aspects of getting the policymakers and getting the decision makers in the room and say, right, we need these kind of roles, etc. Right, I, I think we're coming to the end of the podcast now and I would like to finish with two questions. And the first one would be, If you look far ahead into the future, what do you think a successful career at that stage would look like to you? In my case, it would be that I was successful in supporting users to use high-performance computing software to to solve important problems that led to social impact. That's one of the reasons I was so pleased at the the big spike in folding-at-home usage of of software that I had worked on in in the form of Gromax. So that that was very pleasing to see that my work was having a direct impact in people trying to solve the the problem that was pressing the world. As a research software engineer, that is the kind of impact one can hope to achieve. It was a little bit serendipitous in, in my case. I didn't set out to achieve that. It sort of happened. Other people recognized opportunities I'd created and built on them, and that's wonderful. So yeah, that, that's, that's what a, a successful career would look like to me. And finally, if you do have any spare time, what do you like to do in your spare time? Well, at the moment, I have very little spare time because I have a young baby. Back before we, we, we had our baby, my, my partner and I both uh, were active participants in, in West Coast Swing partner dancing, which is oh, right. uh, it's a, a style that came out of California quite some years ago now. It's, it's quite a few decades old. It's a, an evolution of Lindy Hop style dancing, but much more to R&B and pop style music, which means there's a, a wider variety of musical genres you can dance to. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I guess COVID is uh, putting a stop to that for now, but hopefully you're going to be able to pick it up again. Indeed, I hope so. Well, thanks very much, Mark. That was a great interview and thanks for your time and I wish you all the best for the future. Thanks very much, Peter. It was great to be here. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcast from. And with that... Goodbye.